what we're trying to do in the museum is present some of these, you know, significant challenges, and obviously mm -hmm. the climate crisis being the largest of those, right? Mm -hmm. and, and right now, that seems like, you know, the most important thing to look at from the perspective of how might we, you know, creatively adapt to that challenge. At this point, you know, we are talking about, you know, mitigation and adaption. I mean, it, we, we are, you know, going to be faced with these you know, impacts of climate change for at least the next two to 300 years, even if we end all emissions today. That was Laith Carlson. He's the executive director of the Museum of the Future in Dubai. The Museum of the Future is dedicated to telling stories about how humans might adapt to current global crises. Right now, the climate crisis is the most pressing issue. For example, the main story takes people on a journey to 2071 where they experience a world where people have adapted to climate change by collecting solar energy from the moon and beaming it back to Earth, giving clean energy to the majority of the world. In order to ensure the science behind these ideas, the museum worked with collaborators from around the world who vetted the science, including people at NASA and at the European Space Agency. Recently, Stanford University proved that this technology wasn't just something created by a museum, it was actually possible. The Museum of the Future opened its doors in 2022, and since then, over 20 world leaders have visited. Laith says that this is important because climate change is an issue that requires international collaboration. These leaders are among the ones in a position to make changes that will positively impact their countries. Because climate change is an issue that requires large-scale structural changes, the best thing individuals can do is lobby their governments for change. Laith goes on to say that the best hope we have for addressing some of these complex challenges is more indigenous knowledge than scientific understanding, because scientific understanding and reductionist understanding is, in a lot of ways, what got us to where we are today. So here he is, Laith Carlson. <laughs> Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska. And I'm Dr. Sandro De Bono. I'm a museum thinker from the Mediterranean island of Malta, and I work with museums to help them strategize around possible futures. And we'll be your hosts. In this Chattermark series, we talk to museum directors and knowledge holders about what museums around the world are doing to adapt and react to climate change. So, Laith, from what I've read about you online, it sounds like you're a pretty active guy. In your free time, you make furniture, you do graphic design, and paint. You design clothing, renovate houses, restore Italian motorcycles, Ooh. build custom cars. You sail, garden, snowboard, and cycle. Are you ever... Not all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be We weren't sure about that. We weren't sure about that. <laughs> Are you ever bored? Do you ever find yourself with nothing to do? Very rarely. Uh, but I will say, I mean, those are all things that I've done periodically over, you know, my life. Um, I, I'm not actively necessarily doing all of those things, that, but I would say about half of them I'm still 
still doing. So no, I'm not bored often. Uh, <laughs> although right now my, my family's away. So I think over the last weekend is the first time I've been bored maybe in 10 years. Uh, but of course I started working on another project. Do you find that um, that's the type of person you are? You know, you, you like to dabble in lots of different things and then maybe like excel at a few things. I'd say, I mean, that's, you know, part of my interest in the museum field. I, I found my way into museums when I was um, an 18-year-old freshman at university. Mm -hmm. And what I kind of fell in love with in museums is the ability to do so many different things. I've had, you know, probably a dozen different roles within museums and in working with museums, but then just the content alone of the museums I've gotten to work with is so incredibly varied, right? So it's anything from, you know, anthropology museums to computer history museums and, um, you know, all kinds of science-based institutions. And to me, that's the kind of fun of it is, it is the ability to kind of play around with so many different disciplines and, and also be involved in so many different ways, right? So it's been mm -hmm. consistent, I think, with my, my outside interests also, you know, being very, um, diverse and, and looking at kind of how do I do different things, but it's also always been a matter of like, how do I blend sort of doing things more with my hands um, and then also with my brain, right? And so mm -hmm. I'm always trying to find that balance. So I'd say that, you know, if I'm doing something that's primarily an intellectual pursuit in my work life, definitely, you know, in my personal life, I'll be doing things more, you know, with outdoor sports or more with, you know, building, you know, furniture, or remodeling houses and things. Because I think it's that really essential for me to have that balance between kind of the intellectual and the physical. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder when you figured that out. I'd say very early on. So um, I think what you left off of that resume is, you know, back when I was in high school, I actually um, competed in the United States Skills Olympics um, in the okay. precision machining um, category. So when I was in high school, I spent pretty much all of my available time in the machine shop and the wood shop and things, building things, um, and really, you know, loved that process of making things. Um, and then when it went to you know, looking at university, it was either I would study something like mechanical engineering or mm -hmm. I ended up studying actually cultural anthropology um, because I was much more interested in how people use tools um, okay. than necessarily you know, making things myself at that point. Uh, you know, so I kind of, from I, th I would say you know, my high school days um, on, you know, I, I kind of just had that, that interest in doing the physical work, but then understanding, well, why do people do that kind of work? Why do people use these tools? You know, how do these things develop? Yeah. Um, so I think it's been there from, from that point on. Wow, that's really interesting. So you, you enjoy the academic side of things, but then you also really appreciate understanding the practical use of it as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, I mean, it's I think it's quite difficult to really appreciate maybe, you know, some of the uh, really deep thinking and problem solving that happens when you're doing that kind of physical work. If you've only looked at it from the academic perspective. Yeah. Right? And I think I mean, there's some fantastic books, um, one of them called um, Shop Craft is Soul Craft. Uh, which is kind of a fantastic examination sort of of really what does happen when you, in this case, it was someone who left kind of the think tank world and then he became somebody who ran a motorcycle repair shop and the kinds of 
thinking that were required, you know, in his perspective, was actually uh, quite deeper um, repairing motorcycles and working as an intellectual in the think tank. And yeah. in my own experience, I would say, you know, does follow that, um, you know, line. I, I, some of the problems I've tackled technically have been far more complex and more challenging than, you know, things that I've done uh, more, you know, as an academic or, you know, as in, in the museum field. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you've been working in museums since you were 18. What did that look like working in a museum 32 years ago? And that would have been 1991, correct? Yeah. So, yeah, in 1991, I started as a freshman at the University of New Mexico in, in Albuquerque, um, studying cultural anthropology. And I was fortunate to have a bit of a scholarship there, but I needed to pay for the rest of my education. And at that time, you could kind of get a job in museums um, more, much more easily, I would say, than today. Um, mm, whereas today, okay. you know, we have this kind of this notion that people need master's degrees and all of these things to, to get entry-level positions in museums. That was, really wasn't the case 30 years ago. Um, and I feel quite fortunate to, you know, have kind of needed a job and ended up in museums rather than today when so many people, you know, aspire to work in museums and have to work so hard to get those, you know, initial opportunities. You know, for me, it was kind of backwards. And, uh, and the interesting thing then was I'd actually never been to a museum before. Uh, so I grew up, um, you know, quite poor in a rural area in America where we didn't have museums um, and I didn't have access to museums. So, so it was also an interesting experience to really encounter museums for the first time as a staff member and not as a member of the public. Yeah. You know, how do you think that that has affected museums having to get a degree in order to work at one? Well, I mean, I've been quite vocal, I think, in, in the, you know, it's a huge problem, I'm particularly okay. in a field that for 20 years has been discussing, you know, diversity and staffing, uh, but hasn't made even the most fundamental structural changes required to make that, you know, really possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, from my last two museums, we've had fully paid staff, um, you know, no interns um, and, no, and no volunteers. Uh, and that's something I've been quite, you know, conscious of building those institutions around those principles, because that's how we build equity in institutions and actually, you know, both those institutions are, you know, ones that have won awards for the diversity of staff. And it's quite simple. It's about, you know, paying staff equitably mm-hmm. and you know, instituting other practices that make it a welcoming place of employment for people from diverse backgrounds. And, you know, it's, it's not about having committees. It's not about making statements and things. It's doing something, you know, fairly basic, which is actually paying your staff. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, th- that's where we really need to focus if we want to increase diversity in, in our organizations um, is looking at some of those quite structural issues, right? And the other thing, my last museum, we had no degree requirements for any position. And and in part because our founder was Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, and Mm. neither he nor Bill Gates had ever graduated from university. And Mm -hmm. so I kind of would joke that, like, I couldn't post a job that, that, you know, Paul wouldn't be qualified to take, right? (laughs) That'd be a little ridiculous, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, and I, so... You know, and, and that's taking it a little bit maybe to the extreme, but I still, you know, even at our current institution, actually, we, we have a blind hiring practice where actually people kind of run through an online system that actually masks, um, you know, where they're from and, and other attributes about their background. And so we actually don't even know, you know, until we get fairly far into the process, maybe what some of their academic qualifications and things are. Hmm. And what was it that originally interested you in museums? 
Well, you know, that's the funny thing. I wasn't really interested. You know, okay. I, I didn't, I had never been to one, right? I mean, I kind okay. of had an inkling. You know, I was one of these kids that, you know, in the 80s, I grew up with National Geographic and Smithsonian magazines all over the house, right? So, yeah. so I had that exposure to kind of that world, but I really didn't understand what museums do. And I think actually most of the public doesn't really understand what museums do, right? There's a hmm. quite narrow conception. I mean, Neat. my ongoing Neat. argument with the New York Times is every time they say museum, they're actually talking about art museums. Exactly. Right? So, mm, okay. so even there, they don't have this broader understanding of the diversity of museums that exist, nor the diversity of work in museums, right? The other thing people think about is like the only role is as a curator, right? Which is actually, you know, one of the rarest roles probably in most museums, uh, hmm. you know, to have. But that in the public conception, you know, that is, you know, what people think of. So, so I really didn't have any sense um, of how museums worked, what the work was. Um, to me, it was just a job that I needed, and it was an interesting one, right? It was an ability to kind of make things that were quite, you know, unique in a way that like this idea that, oh, you could build an exhibition that then, you know, thousands or millions of people would come and, and see and interact with and, you know, and have some impact on people. And to me, that was the part that was really quite exciting to, to think about how broad that impact of the things that you might, you know, design and build could be. What do you think was important to museums back then versus now? So back in the 90s when I started, um, I was kind of fortunate to be at an anthropology museum when um, in the U.S. the NAGPRA um, you know, law was passed about native um, remains repatriation. And, and so really it was interesting to be kind of on the periphery of an institution because I was obviously in the exhibits department, not collections, but looking at the collections team and how they were dealing with this, particularly you know, as we were a museum in the American Southwest that had large indigenous um, popular, you know, um, artifacts in our collections and, and mm -hmm. looking at how they were really kind of struggling with this idea of, you know, of, of ownership, of repatriation, of, you know, kind of who had access to the things. I remember there was a large collection of Katrina dolls from the Pueblo people and, and those dolls are, you know, very um, sacred and not supposed to be viewed by the public and yet they were in kind of an open storage you know, area, right? And then mm. looking at, okay, how do we, how do we change those things? So I was kind of watching that, you know, from the edges and, and I thought it was quite interesting, kind of these debates kind of that were starting then about the role of museums. It was also interesting while I was there, we mounted a traveling exhibition from the University of Pennsylvania Museum of um, Anthropology and Archaeology of Pueblo pottery that had been collected by researchers from UPenn, you know, back in the kind of turn of the century, but then being, you know, brought back to where they had come from kind of on loan, right? And then and there was obviously some tensions with the kind of native peoples around that of these things that in, you know, in their minds may or may not have been taken, you know, with, um, you know, uh, officially in, in ways that, you know, they should have, right? And mm -hmm. were they kind of stolen goods in a sense that now were kind of, you know, being brought back and put on display just to only be removed again, right? And mm -hmm. so I think that for me, that was the beginning of what's now obviously become, you know, a very large push to decolonization in museums and really thinking about, you know, where museum artifacts come from and, and a lot of the, you know, concerns about what, what things do we put on display, right? Mm -hmm. it, for me mm -hmm. at this point now, if I go to a museum and I see, you know, a Egyptian mummy, for instance, on display, it, it feels quite out of time and place for me. It feels like mm, okay. you know, that's something that that's, that feels quite uncomfortable, right? Because 
you know, having kind of lived through seeing particularly anthropology museums and archaeology museums, you know, really kind of addressing these issues and some doing it, I would think, I think quite well, right? So the Museum of Us in, in San Diego, right, that used to be the Museum of Man and watching that evolution of what they've been going through. And I think they are, you know, become a quite a good case study in, in how to really intentionally go through that process of change, right? And then you still see these institutions that feel like they're quite callously, you know, displaying human remains, right? And it's, and to me, that's, that seems quite problematic, right? So it's, uh, it's something I'm, I'm quite interested in watching this develop and seeing, you know, although it does feel like it's happening very slowly, you know, to me, it's surprising that I was kind of first, you know, exposed to these ideas over 30 years ago, right? And it, it's similar to the diversity initiatives, like it's been, it seems like my entire career, we've been talking about these things, but the action has been quite slow to happen. You know, I've enjoyed working with this really highly diverse group of museums, you know, and, and you know, I will often also say I, mean, I work for all the museums that people question whether they're even really museums, right? Mm -hmm. um, so Museum of Innovation, you know, a, a museum where we let people use our, the artifacts and now a museum of the future, right? So, so I really do enjoy pushing the boundaries a bit of what people might consider, you know, to be truly be a museum. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that does give, my, give me some, you know, sense of, you know, where things might be trending. Uh, but I, it's, it's very, I would say, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to really predict because it is such a diverse field. And I think that's what mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I really worry about people, you know, kind of thinking about all museums as kind of similar and that they, you know, sharing certain attributes. There's such a diversity of institutions and, and particularly globally, you know, museums that are filling very different needs. Uh, the museums that we're starting to see being developed, you know, in the Middle East where I am now, are filling different needs within you know the communities and societies here um, than they might you know somewhere else. I mean, I'm in a country that's only you know 50 years old right now, right? So it's like mm -hmm. what what institutions you build as a 50 year old country are quite different than what you might build as a 500 year old country. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. You are now the executive director of the Museum of the Future in Dubai, and. On the facade of the building, written in Arabic text, one can read the following, and I'm quoting here. We may not live for hundreds of years, but the products of our creativity can leave a legacy long after we're gone. And I found this quite insightful. I mean, is this a good synthesis of the vision and ambition of your institution? That's a good question. I, I mean, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that directly, and that is, um, I will say, a quote from His Highness Sheikh Mohammed, the, the ruler of Dubai, um, and, and along with um, two other quotes that we have on the museum around the future. Uh, so I don't think, you know, actually, I'd say as an institution, Museum of the Future is doing quite the opposite of that. We're very intentionally not actually building a collection-based institution, not building an institution that's kind of fixed um, as what it is. I mean, we're actually... Even now, we've only been open a year and a half, but we're actually thinking about kind of radically reframing our approach to exhibitions and programs. Um, okay. you know, so, so the idea is to be a quite an agile institution and one that actually really does react quite quickly kind of to, to what things you know, are, are working with um, how we're presenting our topic and, and where the challenges might be and adjusting. So, so I don't think we have any ambition actually of being a place that's around you know, for 100 years. Uh, and actually we quite intentionally even built 
all the exhibitions in the museum in such a way they can be removed from the building without any impact whatsoever on the building. Um, we okay. literally did not drill a single hole in a wall or a floor. Everything floats within the building um, because what I was saying at the time was that, you know, I, I don't want to be so presumptuous to think that even 30 years from now, a museum of the future is what Dubai or the world needs. Mm. Uh, it's something that seems to make sense right now. Uh, but it would be presumptuous to think it would make sense, you know, in in the future. So I wanted to to make sure that we actually allowed for that kind of radical change of the building's use. Uh, so so you know I think that that that's interesting. It's an interesting question because obviously you know in other ways certainly you know here in the region there is a lot of thinking about legacy. There is a lot of thinking about what do you know, we, we build that has a, you know, a long standing impact. Uh, but I would say the museum is actually not um, so much a part of that. And I think that actually that is kind of the strength, I would say, of, of leadership here is that not everything has to conform kind of to the same ambitions, right? Like okay. You can build things here that are more temporary than others and, and more, you know, more adaptable than others. Mm -hmm. In, in a recent interview with the BBC, you remarked that, and I'm quoting here as well, we're focused on the human story of the future. We're looking at the big challenges that are going to be facing humanity and the creative solutions that people might deploy to overcome them. Does this statement then describe the museum? Is it more in line with what you have just told us? or Absolutely. Is it yeah, it, that's absolutely in, in line. But the idea being, right, that, that what we're trying to do in the museum is present some of these, you know, significant challenges and obviously mm -hmm. the climate crisis being the largest of those, right? Mm -hmm. and, and right now that seems like, you know, the most important thing to look at from the perspective of how might we, you know, creatively adapt to that challenge. At this point, you know, we are talking about, you know, mitigation and adaption. I mean, we, we are, you know, going to be faced with these you know, impacts of climate change for at least the next two to 300 years, even if we end all emissions today, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. knowing that that's kind of where we are, and I, we take a very, you know, science and data-driven approach at the museum of going, okay, that's, that's where we are. It's our choice then, do we present a, you know, very kind of dystopian and hopeless version of where that leads us, or do we choose to present an optimistic and hopeful vision? And our perspective is the world is full of those dystopian visions, particularly in the media, so why not be the alternative to that, right? Mm -hmm. But we're doing that with eyes wide open. We know the science, we know the data, we know where we're headed. Um, but I would say that you know this is where my, my background originally studying anthropology comes into play a bit, is if you look historically, right, People have done an incredible job of adapting to all different climates around the world. And actually here in the region, you know, we're in a place that the kind of, you know, extreme weather that a lot of the world is facing this summer is normal for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it was 47 degrees um, Celsius today here in Dubai, right? And that's not a norm, that's, you know, that's just the normal weather report, right, in the summer. Mm. Um, so, you know, it also helps to be in a region that those kind of climatic extremes are quite normal and that people have adapted and adjusted to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and primarily a lot of that adaptation historically has been more cultural than it has been technological. Uh, and I think that that's really an important part of the museum is that the story is one that's more of a universal human story than this kind of techno-optimist type of story. We're not saying that some you know, kind of new technology is going to solve these issues. Um, you know, that's really unlikely to be true. And, and actually mm. the tools that we need to address these, 
these issues all exist today, right? Indeed. It's just a matter of we're not broadly deploying them or there's kind of structural changes that might need to take place for them to be effective, right? So I think that that's more of our focus is understanding that no, if we you know, had the collective will today to address things like the climate crisis, we actually could have a massive impact. It's not a matter of waiting for just some miracle technology to come along. Mm -hmm. So I might be asking an obvious question here, but perhaps can you take us through a, a virtual descriptive tour, an audio tour of the museum then? What, is, what are the experiences that one I can would... try. Okay. <laughs> I can try. I will say it, it, it's always a little challenging because it's very intentionally a multi-sensory um, very immersive experience in the museum that's also facilitated by our incredible staff that are throughout the museum guiding people through the experiences. So, so it is a little difficult to do it, um, particularly only you know, using one um, you know, medium, which is audio, but I'm gonna get, I'll give it a shot. Uh, so the basic premise of the core exhibitions of the museum um, are taking people on a journey to 2071. Um, and 2071 was chosen because it would be the 100th anniversary of the founding of the UAE. Um, and it's also quite convenient at, from a futurist's perspective of kind of going about 50 years in the future um, mm -hmm. is, is a little bit easier than particularly going like one to five or 10 years into the future. Um, so we picked a date intentionally quite far out. Um, but the idea is that people come into the exhibit experience, they get introduced to the concept and then uh, taken into a uh, space launch vehicle, which takes them into outer space and into 2071. Uh, we felt it was really important that we kind of break people away from their day-to-day -day life and take them kind of into an extreme entry point, right? So we, we mm -hmm. put people on this shuttle, um, doors close, and you ascend up into the museum while also going into, you know, the conceit is you're going into space. Um, and then when you depart from that large lift that you're on, you're on a large-scale space station um, that's orbiting the Earth in 2071. Mm. And the primary function of that space station is collecting solar energy from the moon and beaming it um, back to Earth, um, giving you know, clean energy to the majority of the world. Mm. Uh, this, what's interesting about that premise is we came up with that about four years ago as the core storyline of that floor. At that time, that wasn't something that was actively being worked on. And just in the last year, the European Space Agency has launched a large-scale program looking at space-based solar. Stanford University just a few weeks ago proved oh. um, that it was possible. So they actually transmitted uh, energy from space to Earth using microwave transmission, which is what we, uh, our, our you know, museum exhibit, actually that's the technology that we're proposing. So, so it seems like the actual science is catching up to our fictional sort of 2071 world. Huh. Uh, but the real idea for the visitors is that, that if we are in space in 2071 doing an important project like that, it would require an international effort. It would require people of all backgrounds living and working in space. Yeah. Um, so it's something that's much more an inclusive view of being in space than what's been presented, you know, typically by NASA or ESA or other, you know, organizations that's looking at only scientists kind of an engineers in space. No, if we have thousands of people in space, it's going to be a whole, you know, community that's required. Um, and that's worked quite well because our visitors come from over 180 countries from every background you can imagine. Um, mm -hmm. So for them to see kind of a possibility for themselves or their children in space um, is quite empowering. So that's the first core experience uh, and that takes up one floor of the museum. Then people descend a floor to an experience that's looking at um, how we might adapt to climate change and particularly looking at ecosystem adaptation and, and how we might use some technologies of bioengineering, for instance, to 
make, um, you know, to give kind of a helping hand to nature, because one of the things that we're really struggling with, right, is the speed of climate change is so much faster than it's ever naturally occurred, which means the species mm -hmm. can't adapt naturally through natural selection, et cetera, you know, kind of how they would historically, um, because the time scale is so accelerated. So we may need to do some genetic engineering and things like that to help those species adapt. So on that floor, you know, visitors are kind of presented with a challenge of, you know, for instance, how might we make trees that are more resistant to fires, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the core of that experience is a, a very beautiful um, implementation of a kind of a DNA library where you see thousands mm -hmm. of specimens kind of suspended in these holographic jars. And it really is an emotional impact because you really just start to get the sense of the breadth of life on Earth, but then also how threatened that life is, because as you scan those jars, you see all the species that are projected to be extinct by 2071. Um, and that can be a really emotional experience. A number of people actually, you know, break down in tears in that exhibition um, because it is really hmm. kind of gets at the heart of the matter because climate change is not only about changing climate, but it's also about mass extinction of species. And that's yeah. the piece of it that's often less reported on. Um, and we are in the middle of this, you know, massive extinction event right now that's human caused, right? So, so I think that that's a really powerful experience for people. But then we try to transition from that to go, okay, well, how might we help these species? How might we ensure that we don't get to that point where they are going extinct? Uh, so that's a quite powerful floor, I would, I think. And then the third experience, I would say, is the most um, unexpected for people. Um, because it's an experience where we're actually asking people to put their phones away um, and reconnect with their mind, body, and spirit mm -hmm. in that exhibit. So it's really a, a, at the level kind of a, of a human and really getting back in touch um, with your physical body and also socially with the other people around you. So we have um, different kind of activities, including a group humming activity where people gather around a table often with strangers and actually hum together in unison. And it creates this really um, kind of powerful moment of bonding among strangers. And, and that's part of kind of what we're getting at is like how important these communal experiences are, how important it is to connect to each other and not let technology divide us as much. Um, and anticipating that in the future, that's going to become even more of a challenge. Uh -huh. And then the final part of that floor is actually a meditation room experience that we developed with the light artist, Jason Bruges. Um, and you come into a space and people spend 10, 15, 20 minutes um, lying down or sitting down with this really mesmerizing um, light installation that's using a dish of water being vibrated and sending light through it to create these incredible patterns on a domed ceiling with a you know, um, soundtrack that goes along with it and really creating a really a grounding experience before we take people back into the, the current day and age. And that was very important to us is that, that we kind of have this emotional arc to the journey, which we mapped out where we really wanted to leave people feeling more calm and at peace and reflective at the end, rather than kind of worried and stressed out about where this future is going. We really felt it was important to like take care of the guest and, and bring them back kind of into the current day and age and the, with the right um, level of, of care and compassion. And that's something all of our staff are actually trained in is this empathy-based approach to, to working with the guests in the museum, which is, which mm, is quite important. I mean, we have a number of our staff come from countries that are currently at war or have been involved in protracted conflicts. And, you know, many of the visitors are also coming from those backgrounds, right? So, so having care for where those people are coming from. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of, for me, one of the most impactful experiences of that is I was giving a tour um, for the prime minister of the um, Maldives, um, and, you know, I, and one of the kind of my turn, my talking points is, well, everything that we're, we're seeing is based on where we see the science going for 2071, including sea level rise. And he turns to me and he goes, 
yes, my country will not exist in 2071. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I hadn't even thought of that. And of course, that was just it hit me so hard kind of to understand that this is someone who's leading a country through, you know, its extinction event, essentially. Right. And looking mm-hmm. at how does how does he move his whole population and, things, you know, so that that's very powerful when you kind of understand that that's where these people are coming from that are visiting right they're they're in the midst of what for us we've kind of treated a bit more i would say intellectually in development but understanding that it's no it's it, it is an emotional experience it is something yeah you know, the very personal as well and very you know much impacting these people and their families where does your personal perspective on climate change land are you optimistic <laughs> are you pessimistic or are you something else you know, over the last four years, I think that the challenge has been, you know, personally as, you know, our staff and kind of our families are actually dealing with, you know, direct impacts of climate change that, that you know, maintaining that level of optimism around, you know, our potential response and also seeing, frankly, what's happening in global events, right, that, that really mm-hmm. make it seem like the path that we were on, particularly around global co- um, cooperation you know, and, and during COVID, obviously, we built this whole museum essentially during COVID, right? So, so looking at really the, you know, dysfunctional international response and, you know, and often and countries that you wouldn't have maybe expected to, to respond so poorly and seeing that and go, and that really is a bit disheartening, you know, when you see, mm-hmm. you know, that even in the face of something as existential kind of as a global pandemic, countries like the United States really, you know, failed in their response as, as did UK, as did, you know, in some, by some respects, I guess, China, right, in a different way, right? And going on, those are the countries that are actually, you know, the leading admitters, right? So it's like, okay, if, if you know, that was not, I think, you know, inspiring a lot of confidence maybe in how we might move forward. And also, you know, what we understand in the museum, and I think, you know, do our best to kind of express is that these are, challenges that require international collaboration that are structural issues, right? So one thing we really intentionally do in the exhibitions is never assume that the individual can solve these issues just by, you know, recycling some plastic or, you know, not using a plastic straw or these kind of Mm -hmm. these things that have been promoted largely by fossil fuel industries to distract people from the structural changes that are really required, right? So, and I think that it's it's something that's most science museums that I've seen when talking about this issue really put the onus on the individual and really kind of end with those like, well, and here's what you can do. But the reality is what the best thing that people can do is actually lobby their governments for change and, and look at, you know, large scale structural changes and not feel like, you know, the onus is on them just to stop flying a little bit and things like that, because that's not going to actually get us there. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so it's been interesting throughout this process to kind of look at you know, the impact on individuals and those of us on the staff and myself kind of in our perception of kind of a level of optimism around climate issues in particular versus what we're trying to kind of put into the museum. Because the reality is it still doesn't do us any good. If I'm personally pessimistic, it doesn't do me any good to, to pr- promote that in the museum to other people because, you know, th- that's not going to do anything to make a positive impact, right? It's, mm-hmm. um, so I think that, you know, but it, we are quite careful, I would say, in in understanding that, you know, when we've, you know, we've had over 20 world leaders visit the museum in, in the first year we were open, right? And their ability to make that kind of change is significant, right? So we want mm-hmm. to empower them. We want to have them see, you know, that, that they can make really good positive change and impact these, these issues, you know, whereas at the same time, not maybe expecting that, that same level of commitment from the general public.
And how do you respond to people who are pessimistic? What's interesting is that that hasn't really come up. Um, I think the way that we you know, frame um, you know, what we're talking about, I, it's, we don't really give a great opportunity you know, for that to kind of, for that you know, dialogue. I will say what, what we have struggled with a bit is some people that just fundamentally you know, lack some understanding of the science and things. I mean, okay. you know, one of my favorite kind of social media commentaries was somebody criticizing a kind of our approach and saying, and, and they would have us believe that they can collect solar energy from the dark side of the moon. Right. And to me, it's like, okay, but you lack a basic understanding, right, of kind of how the solar system actually works. Right. But yeah. to them, it was an indictment of like all of this stuff that we have in the museum is just made up. Okay. And that is something that we often get is people saying, well, you know, kind of this is all just things some guys in Dubai made up. Right. And, and the reality, of course, is we worked with collaborators around the world, including people, you know, at NASA and at European Space Agency and, you know, all of these, you know, incredible you know, people that are looking at this and, and have vetted the science behind it. Right. But I think it is a challenge when you do present things. Mm -hmm. that in a sense aren't real, right? This mm -hmm. is a fictional possible future that we're presenting, right? And it does open you up to some, some criticisms around like, well, you know, how, how feasible is it? And how, you know, how mm -hmm. likely is this, this future, right? And that's something that now we're doing some changes to the way we introduce the museum to the guests to kind of help them understand really that, that this is fictional. This is something that, you know, some people made up, right? And let's talk about who those people are and, and why kind of, you know, maybe they, they came up with these ideas of what the future might be. Uh, mm -hmm. The other thing we're really finding as a challenge is when you show a future that doesn't conform to what people have seen in movies from the 1980s and 1990s, so I'm thinking like Blade Runner, Minority Report, um, you know, these kind of films, that's people around the world's only conception of the future is still mm -hmm. locked in kind of a conception from some guys in Hollywood 30 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really kind of problematic and challenging because then, you know, some of the things that we do from a design perspective in the museum intentionally are breaking with that tradition. Um, and, you know, and that then people really sometimes are struggling to see that as a viable possible future because, mm -hmm. you know, and another comment we get, I mean, some people say there's nothing futuristic in the museum, right? And what they mean is there's nothing that looks exactly like you know, what's presented in the matrix or, you know, minority report or something, right? It's like, well, mm. you know, that's, that's challenging, right? It's like, because they dismiss it out of hand just because it doesn't conform to, to what they think a future should be, which is mm -hmm. kind of all stainless steel and white plastic and robots. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and ironically, like no one actually wants to live in that future. Right. If you think yeah. about it, like you see these kind of home of the future that's all kind of white plastic and stainless steel. So does anyone actually want to live in that environment? Like I would love to challenge those architects. Like you spend six months with your family there. Right. And then, yeah. and then tell me that's how you want to live in the future. But you you really do come across as positive and committed that humanity shall weather the storm when we talk of climate change. Is this a reasonable possibility then? <laughs> well, here, here's, I would say, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure, hum, I mean, humanity in its current, I think, you know, structure kind of and, and organization um, can't, right? I mean, clearly, and, and I think the biggest thing that we're going to see in the coming years, right, is climate-induced migration at a level that we makes what Europe has been dealing with for the last 10 years seem like nothing, right? So, mm -hmm. so that's going to be massive, I think, impact. And I think necessarily, 
you know, things will have to change when we start to see those kinds of impacts, right? Uh, so, and also issues around food security, which we're starting to see right now with wheat and rice and, you know, kind of staple crops, right? Because of various global events and things, right? So, so I do think that things will have to change quite significantly. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I do enjoy reading, you know, about geology and thinking about things in geological timeframes. And, you know, mm -hmm. the earth is going to be just fine. Humans might have to change quite a bit, but the Earth will be just fine in the long term. If you think in a yeah. geological time frame, this is nothing, right? Like we've been through mass extinctions before. We've been through yeah. massive indeed, upheavals indeed. on this planet, right? And you know, so I think we also have to not get caught in the trap of only looking at things, you know, from the human perspective, as if you know we're all that matters, right? And um, so you know, we'll, we'll we'll see. I think where we come out on this, but you know, as a planet, I'm not as worried. Can you? Walk us through the process of how the Museum of the Future decides on the subject of an exhibition and then how you go about creating it. So we have done this quite in a unique way in our first iteration. And so, you know, what came along fairly early in the process was this idea actually from one of our um, ministers here of going from outer space to inner space. Uh, which we found was a really powerful idea. So the idea of literally kind of starting people off in outer space and then going progressively kind of down, almost in kind of a powers of 10 way in reverse, right? Of, so you kind of end up at the most kind of smallest scale at, at the individual human. Uh, and in between, you kind of have the planetary scale and then you have the scale of the interplanetary, right? So, so we really liked that framing. And, and, you know, fortunately, we have these three floors, right? So the, the framing, we would like to keep that. Um, so going forward, kind of looking at how do we look at these challenges from those three scales, a kind of an interplanetary scale, a planetary scale, and an individual and, and, and you know, social scale. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the overall framing we like to keep in place. Within that, though, we're quite open to taking different approaches, but the approach that we took initially was to convene a bunch of really interesting people from around the world in a workshop um, that took place in, in Berlin before I actually I started um, working on the project. So um, the, the uh, chief futurist of the Dubai Future Foundation at that time, Dr. Noah Rathford, convened this group of really interesting people, basically just to kind of throw all kinds of ideas out there. And this was, you know, artists and technologists and scientists and designers and just people of all different backgrounds, right? And, and then what we were able to do is look at some of the things that came out of that, fit those to these different scales, and then go back to the people that have presented those ideas to say, okay, you know, we like kind of what you're presenting, but we, you know, myself and um, Brendan McGeertrick, our creative director, uh, and the rest of our team kind of came up with a, a storyline that knitted together those different ideas. So on mm -hmm. one floor of the museum, you might actually have um, installations by 10 different artists and designers and technologists, but they all seamlessly fit together in a storyline that we created at the museum. Uh, and that's something I don't think has ever been done before. And in mm -hmm. some ways, it's similar to what um, Meow Wolf um, did in Santa Fe and now in their other installations, right, of, of kind of having a bit of a storyline that artists are working within, but it, there, if you, particularly in the original Meow Wolf, it was really kind of giving an artist a room and having them kind of build something that had a loose connection to a storyline. Whereas in our case, we really had a very detailed storyline and a unified design um, look for and feel for all the areas, right? So, so things really seamlessly blend together. And that was a really interesting and different approach because many of the particularly more prominent artists and designers we worked with had never done that before. 
Mm -hmm. They were quite mm -hmm. used to developing an installation that might be installed like at the Barbican or somewhere like that, right? With their name next to it saying, this is done by Marshmallow Laser Feast, and this is kind of, you know, the background of it. In our case, mm -hmm. they were creating similar pieces, but done in a way that was seamlessly integrated with other um, people's work in the same, in this kind of unified storyline. Um, so I'd say it was a really kind of an innovative way to do that. And, and Brendan gets a lot of credit for kind of keeping everyone aligned and kind of making sure things did feel, you know, very seamless. And I think I give also, I'd like to, you know, thank kind of all those collaborators because it was new for them to work in this way. And I think a lot of them really felt it was an impactful experience to work so collaboratively with others um, mm -hmm. and, and have, you know, the work kind of have this larger meaning of how it all works together to get at kind of some of the, you know, important things that we were trying to convey rather than it being something that gives them kind of individual credit, you know, for their work, right? Mm -hmm. um, on the other side of that, I mean, one of the things that we've noticed is sometimes people aren't understanding that that is where these things are coming from, right? So they see this thing, and once again, it's kind of this perception of that's just something some people in Dubai made up, right? Rather than know mm -hmm. this is something, you know, that a group called Superflux in the UK came up with, right? And that we thought was a good idea, and we helped them develop it and, and install it, but it's their, very much their kind of concept and not ours, right? And I think there's actually a power in it coming from this diversity of of collaborators, right? But we, we haven't yet figured out a good way to expose that while also maintaining this idea of this kind of unified storyline and immersive experience. You know, I spent some time on your website and on the front page, you have this question. Why shouldn't people use our museums like they do our parks and libraries? What do you mean by that? So yeah, years ago, I'm working in, in the U.S. This is a bit of a revelation I had that, you know, looking at our museums and going like, well, why do people always talk about visiting a museum, but they don't talk about using, you know, they don't talk about, I'm going to go visit the library. They go, I'm mm -hmm. going to go check out a book from the library, use the computer at the library, doing research at the library, mm -hmm. you know, or I'm going to go to a park to, you know, play basketball or have a picnic or do these things, right? So they're, they're using those institutions, but yet when it came... The museums, most often people think about it as just kind of, oh, well, it's just a nice place to go and visit, okay. right? And there isn't the same sense of usefulness around the institution. Um, so, you know, this was in now almost a decade ago, I started playing with this idea of, well, well, how do we transform our museums into being more useful places? Um, and particularly my work at the Tech Museum of Innovation in Silicon Valley was very much focused on this because, you know, we were an institution that was, you know, an hour south of San Francisco that previous leadership had thought we could become a tourist destination. And when myself and Tim Ritchie, the president at the time, both got there, we, we looked at the situation and said, that's not going to happen, right? So how do we instead transform ourselves into a community resource? And mm. that was really the genesis of this idea of, okay, if we're going to not be around tourism, not be around visitation, but be around usefulness, mm -hmm. how does that really transform the institution? In that case, it absolutely 100% transformed that entire institution to really being about a place that the mm -hmm. uh, diverse communities of Silicon Valley can come to to learn real skills and to kind of develop in, in ways that are really meaningful to their lives and, and impactful for them, rather than this idea of just kind of a nice place to kind of take your kids on an afternoon outing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also spent some time on the Museum of the Futures website, and I felt like there was a lot of attention focused on imagining a future. You know, we've been talking about this stuff, where conservation, preservation, and mental health and wellness are a priority. And then 
what would the world look like if we focused more on those things? Have you thought about what the future would look like if we do start focusing more on those things, conservation, preservation, and mental health and wellness? You know, this is another you know, question that kind of gets at both my kind of professional work and personal life, right? So, I mean, obviously for many of us, those are very important things in our, in our personal lives. And, you know, but yet there are structural reasons where it's often challenging to set up our lives in that way, right? I mean, I think that particularly coming from kind of an American context, like, you know, people are very geographically disconnected, disconnected in our communities through, you know, um, you know, the way that we do land use um, in communities, the way that we keep communities segregated, you know, through legal frameworks and things. So I think that there's some real structural challenges that make kind of having that life challenging a lot of places. Um, I've been quite fortunate in that personally, I've been able to kind of find places that do personally satisfy those needs better. I mean, I'm actually speaking to you right now from what's called Sustainable City here in Dubai, um, okay. which is a car-free, um, you know, solar-powered um, development that it, it is a place where there's a greater sense of community, right? I mean, my kids can go out the front of my, you know, villa here and go play with other kids and ride their bikes around and do that and have a real sense of community here within where we live, right? And it's also obviously wow, nice. ecologically, um, you know, more aligned with my values and things. Now they're still, obviously it's not perfect, right? They're still, you know, I still have to commute to the museum from here and things like that, right? That that aren't maybe ideally connected, but it's it's getting closer to that, right? And it's there is definitely, you know, it's a healthier environment as well because we're not, you know, in our cars going everywhere. We're riding our bikes around the community and we're, we're being outdoors more and things, even in the heat. Uh, so, so, you know, so I think that that to me, like there, then, you know, there's the classic line of the future is already here. It's just not broadly distributed, right? And I think that, that really is so true. And when we work on the museum and looking at, okay, there are these examples around the world, right, of, of plot projects and, and, and things that are getting us much closer to that preferable future. It's just there are these small pockets, right? There are things mm -hmm. that haven't become widespread or easily accessible for everyone yet. Um, and I think that's where, you know, once again, kind of the, we need to focus on, well, what are the structural reasons for that, right? So building something like Sustainable City is much easier actually here in Dubai than it would be in America because we don't have nearly the bureaucracy here and the land use restrictions and the things like that that make you know, doing anything innovative in the construction industry in America, very, very difficult, right? Hmm. Also, there's no national kind of standards, right? Everything is local and every, it's, so, you know, this is why also innovation in schools in America is so difficult, right? Because you have local school boards, you have state boards, you have all, you know, it's, it's very um, decentralized, right? And I think that that makes it really challenging. I think it's interesting when you see some of these more developing countries that don't have such an established kind of bureaucracy and things that, that how much more quickly some of this innovation can happen. So it's, I think, one of those things to look at, okay, how, how might people in countries like America look at those structural issues and put more emphasis on changing those things, you know, changing zoning laws and things is much more important than me personally building a straw bale house or something like that, right? Because mm. um, that's actually not, it's not me doing that individual action that's important. It's me actually changing the laws so that everyone has access to better housing, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, something I just thought of, and I wonder what you think about this, Laith, you're, you're talking about uh, sustainable city, and it, it is within a place that is not as old as, as far as being a country goes as the U.S. And I wonder if you are or if you've if you've thought about 
younger countries, developing countries, if they have maybe an easier time and advantage to be futuristic rather than something that's more established because something that's more established might be tougher to change. I, it, I think it really depends on the context, right? I think that in some okay. place, I mean, in Dubai, obviously that's true, right? I mean, because here we have a leadership that, that values this, right? And is quite supportive of it. And, and really, I mean, it, what's interesting, if you know the history of Dubai, you know, so the UAE is you know, made up of seven emirates and you, Dubai is one of them. Dubai had some of the least um, um, oil deposits of all of the emirates, right? So Abu Dhabi has all, most of the, and now pretty much the only um, emirate that still has oil and large amounts of it, but um, Dubai essentially has none. Um, and so when the leadership at the time, um, Sheikh Rashid, who was le you know, leading Dubai, saw that the, we have a little bit of this resource, how do we leverage that to build infrastructure that then makes us no longer dependent on that resource? Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, at the time, I mean, we're talking about 1970s, right? That was a really insightful approach. And, and something now that you're seeing, obviously, Saudi Arabia and other countries trying to emulate. Um, but I think having that approach early on of going, oh, no, we have just enough kind of revenue coming from this that we can leapfrog kind of forward into the future. But it's not, it's not so much of this resource that it's going to make us kind of just dependent on that. We actually have to diversify. We have to look at the future. We have to constantly be reinventing ourselves, right? And, mm -hmm. and so, the, you know, Dubai has gone through a period of this kind of reinvention. And, and right now, I mean, really focused on actually being a, a hub for technology and innovation, which it had not been, you know, just 10 years ago, let's say, right? And so, I mean, the fact we have a space state, um, program, we have an astronaut on ISS right now finishing up a six-month stint on ISS, right? 10 years ago, that wasn't even something that this, this area was thinking about, really, you know? So, so I think that idea of kind of constant reinvention, constantly kind of, you know, having a motivation to kind of keep relevant and keep fresh is really unique, I'd say, to, to Dubai, but it's only, not to Dubai only, right? I mean, you can look at um, South Korea, you can look at Singapore, you can look at, you know, some of these other um, countries as well that are kind of really looking at kind of how they constantly reinvent themselves. And, um, you know, but I, I will say that, you know, there are plenty of other young countries in the world that have nowhere near the resources, you know, in order to, to really kind of kickstart that process. And we, mm -hmm. we just kind of fort have been fortunate in Dubai to have that, right? I think, you know, in the lack of, I mean, you look at some of our neighbors like Yemen, for instance, right? I mean, obviously much more challenging situation, um, you know, places like that, right? So so I think it's, it's, it, it's not, you know, as universal. It's just because you're a young country, you can do this. I think that mm. it does require very, you know, um, you know, very incredible, you know, just I'm mean, really, you know, insightful leadership and, and daring leadership that kind of looks at them and go, okay, let's try these things and let's not be afraid to, to try and fail, right? Which for a country, that's that's quite unique. And, and here, you know, I mean, not everything has worked, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, it has in the bigger scheme of things, you know, enough has worked to kind of propel um, Dubai forward, right? So I think mm -hmm. that, you know, it, it's, there's a possibility there, um, but I don't think it's a guarantee, right? Just like there's plenty okay. of very established countries, I think, that can do quite innovative things, right? I mean, if you look at, you know, the Nordic countries and things, I mean, certainly very long histories there, very established governments, but also, you know, the ability there to, to do, you know, um, some good innovative work as well. So, you know, and be quite futuristic in their own ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought of asking you later a little bit more about the way how you present climate change to your publics. I know that you are a relatively young institution, very young institution, but you did work on exhibitions like, for example, 
the one that the Dubai Future Foundation put up in 2017, entitled Museum of the Future Climate Change Reimagined, that presented a future where we not only survived the challenges of climate change, but thrived. I mean, is this your, your way of looking at climate change? And are there any plans in the works you know, to, to look at climate change, perhaps in other ways and means? So, you know, I must say that the exhibition that you're referring to was before my time with the institution um, and, and coming from a bit different uh, approach at that time. Um, but I will say that, you know, we are, you know, constantly, I think, going to be, you know, re-examining this issue. And I think this is the, uh, you know, benefit of being an agile institution that can change quite quickly. So I think, you know, when it comes to how we present, um, you know, you know, the climate crisis and, and climate change in the museum, I think it's, it's a very, you know, right now we take a very matter-of-fact approach, basically, of saying this is happening, this is, you know, by 2071, this is kind of where we're going to be, this is, you know, a lot of the glaciers are going to be lost, you know, Antarctic ice sheets will have broken off, things, you know, will be, you know, quite dire when it comes to sea level rise already, you know, even by 2071, we're going to be starting to see those impacts, right? So I think, but we're presenting in a way that, like, this is just where we're headed because at this point it is just a physical process. This is not, you know, it, it, there is no stopping it in a sense. You know, we can slow it down maybe a little bit, but we really, we are on this trajectory, right? So we're very matter of fact about that. On the other hand, this is where kind of the <clears throat> really trying to get people to think creatively comes into play to go, okay, if this is where we're headed, how do we have a creative response and how do we kind of show one creative response in the museum, or a few maybe, but really the whole point is to get people to think about, well, what other creative responses are possible? Mm -hmm. You know, and particularly looking at the heads of state and, you know, ministers and others that we have come visit and go, that have that real ability to enact, you know, significant change, go, okay, let's really encourage them to think more, you know, creatively and more broadly about, well, what might that really look like, right? And it might be some kind of fairly, what seems like fairly audacious ideas, and that's some of, you know, the the project that you were talking about, I think, from 2017 had some quite audacious things with, you know, kind of bioengineering of, um, you know, organisms to then, you know, kind of de do desalination at large scale and things, right? And that's quite okay. audacious to go, okay, like, would we actually create kind of, you know, artificial organisms to, you know, to desalinate um, seawater, right? I mean, it's more probably likely that it is a mechanical thing, but, but mm. sometimes when you think kind of present something that audacious, it gets people thinking more broadly about the possibilities. Okay, interesting. So in a way you are reconciling a global perspective or your, your audiences or your publics are, are global, but then there's also a regional audience or public and it would be interesting uh, perhaps to ask you how you would reconcile the two because for example, the United Nations does highlight the devastating toll that climate change will have on the regions, for example, water supplies and food production systems with freshwater resources heavily depleted within the next 50 years. And I mean, the Middle East is also warming at twice the global average. And by 2050, I mean, there are there are big challenges ahead. We've been speaking about 2071 here. So how would you reconcile the, the global view of things with the region's more specific challenges then? 
That's a great question. I mean, I think we, you know, we were tasked with building a global institution. And, and as I mentioned, you know, we've had visitors from 180 countries. Um, so, you know, it has reset broad audience, but we also do, you know, serve a local audience and our local audience is, is quite unique as well, right? As the, you mm -hmm. know, most diversity uh, on earth where 90% of the population, you know, is from uh, outside of the UAE, uh, right? So it's, it is a really interesting, even within the local context, to understand, you know, that the, the people that live in Dubai, you know, are also from over 180 countries, right? With very different backgrounds, um, but all kind of living in a place that does have this long history of adapting to quite a harsh climate and, and you know, and at times obviously like now thriving within that climate, even though, you know, it is, you know, a, a climate that much more of the rest of the world is starting to look like, right? So so mm. what, what to us is a normal summer day, you know, at 40, you know, with a, you know, six degrees, 47 degrees, you know, um, uh, is now, I mean, you know, when that hits in Spain or in somewhere else, right, it becomes kind of this, you know, incredible crisis. And, and not to downplay that, but I mean, we look at those things and go like, well, yeah, like we, we actually know how to live under those conditions here because that's, mm. you know, it's been that way for quite a while. Is it getting worse? Yes, it is. You know, and actually, you know, we unpredictable. We had actually a large kind of rainstorm kind of wind event here on the Saturday that was quite unusual for in the middle of summer. I mean, normally we do not get those in the summertime, right? So so we, we still are getting those kind of impacts, but I would say that there is an incredible uh, commitment here on the part of government to address those things. And, you know, I mean, I, I like to point out to our American colleagues, you know, the ministry here is called the Ministry of Climate Change and the Environment. Mm, I right? see. So it's, like, it's, it's front and center in that. We also have a Ministry of Food Security. Right. So the idea, like, because once again, we've always kind of here had to import food. Right. That's not a new thing for us. And and so understanding going forward. Right. And also, obviously, we you know, we're one of the leaders in desalinization technology um, and now increasingly solar powered desalinization. Right. So so these are all things that are, I think global cities are all going to be needing you know, a model for how to, to live in those conditions. And I think there's an opportunity here to provide that while at the same time understanding that you know, locally, you know, these things will also become more and more important to, to address well um, here. So I think that, you know, it's, it is something we're, we're aware of. I think one thing we've done a lot is focus on the more local population through our programming. Um, we have this kind of odd situation that the museum um, attendance has been sold out since the day we opened. So for mm, almost a year great. and a half every day, we've been sold out. Um, which is, yeah. it, well, it's, it is and it isn't. It's great, except for the local <laughs> people then don't come, right? So the you're, local oh, population, okay. you're right. if you're looking for something to do with the family on a weekend, right, it's not so easy just to drop by the museum because all the tickets are already sold, you know, a week or two or three or sometimes six weeks in advance, right? Um, so we've really adapted to that through the progr public programming that we're doing, um, which is also often sold out, um, but it's uh, much more of a local audience that's coming to that public programming. And a lot of the things that we're focused on in the public programming is addressing kind of some of these these issues, right? And, and having mm -hmm. kind of conversations around things that are, you know, both globally, you know, important, but also, um, you know, work in a, in a local context as well. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and do kind of augment what we're talking about in the exhibitions. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something we're looking at. I think going forward, I mean, you know, one ambition that we've always had with the museum is how do we take the people that come as guests into the museum and go through the experience and actually turn them into a bit more of a community of people that are kind of empowered to take some sort of action, right? Mm -hmm. um, and take action, whether it be, you know, locally here for the residents, you know, 
um, or you know globally somehow to kind of coordinate in this idea of like okay you've you've come and kind of seen a possible creative response to these challenges and hopefully you're feeling a bit you know kind of empowered how do you turn that into meaningful action right and that's something I think we're we're really now starting to look at is you know how do how do we kind of start to build that global community in some way around this idea of kind of creative um, adaptation to these challenges. Is there anything about the future that scares you? <laughs> uh, you know, so it's, so um, I just saw my father uh, last week, which I only see him about once a year, right? And, and he had an interesting question for me. He basically said, you know, when you were growing up, you know, it seemed like kind of the world was a a pretty safe place and you know I reminded him that we did have kind of you know um, nuclear bomb kind of drills and stuff so it wasn't entirely safe um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah but relatively speaking right I mean as an American growing up in the 70s you know and 80s you know we were kind of the first generation that didn't go to war right I mean it's it, I was never you know called up to fight and things in a way that his generation had been right and mm-hmm. and, he, and he was so he was I saying you know he he said okay you had a kind of relatively safe growing up you know what do you think your daughter's experience is right and and you know it, i really had to think about that and because my you know my daughters are both under 10 right and go, okay go, like they've never known a world where existential kind of climate issues weren't aware, something they were aware of right as mm-hmm. well as kind of glo- and particularly living here right my, my daughter oldest daughter goes to a school you know where we have students from ukraine from russia from from China, from, you know, um, from Yemen, from, you know, um, Lebanon, right? Like places that are really, really struggling, right? And I mean, and these mm-hmm. kids, I mean, that's what they came, you know, recently in some cases, I mean, you know, they show up and like last week they were in a war zone, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. the, like that is a very different kind of experience and her awareness globally, right, of, of these things is much greater, I think, than what mine was, you know, as an American in the 70s and 80s. So, so, you know, I can't help but kind of look at it from that perspective and go like, you know, I'm actually probably more concerned now than I've ever been, right, about some of these things. And particularly, mm-hmm. you know, to me, the most distressing development, right, has been the rise of nationalism and the mm-hmm. decrease in international collaboration and cooperation, mm-hmm. right? Because the reality, what we know are these big issues require that kind of collaboration and cooperation and they require you know, pretty much what the opposite of nationalism is, right? Is it being welcoming and inclusive and, you know, accepting of other points of view and willing to have a dialogue and all these things. Whereas, you know, through largely the forces of social media, you know, but other, you know, forces as well, we've actually gone in the opposite direction where it doesn't feel like, it feels like the dialogue I was able to have when I was a university student and things with others that I might've disagreed with, that ability to have that dialogue is constrained to a level now that's, you know, it's almost, incon- I wouldn't have imagined. Like, it seemed like everything was trending in the other direction, right? And and so I think that, that that's what worries me the most, right? Our, our, what we see with kind of breakdown of the ability to have dialogue with others and I even have a shared understanding of basic facts, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something I never would have anticipated, that we would be at a time, you know, when I can see someone and, we don't even have the baseline understanding of factual, you know, things that have happened, whether they be kind of geopolitically, you know, or scientifically, right? And, and so, and without even that most basic common understanding, how do you then have constructive dialogue, right? So I think yeah. that that's really what worries me. How about the future? Is there anything about the future that excites you personally? I think, 
you know, what's most been most interesting for me is, you know, my first kind of um, work experience was in, you know, an anthropology museum dealing a lot, you know, with indigenous populations. And, and that one of the things that strikes me working kind of in looking at futurism is actually the best hope that we have for addressing some of these really complex challenges is actually more indigenous ways of knowing than scientific understanding. Um, mm -hmm. Scientific understanding and reductionist, in particular, scientific understanding has actually kind of got us into this mess. Um, and it's probably not going to get us out of it, which is why like, it really bothers me when you kind of have this sort of, you know, Silicon Valley bro, techno optimistic sort of kind of things like, no, 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 guys, like you, that type of thinking is what got us here. It's not what's going to get us out. We actually, the idea of thinking about these things as highly complex interdependent systems, which is largely the indigenous way of understanding the world is much more likely to get us to a you know, positive outcome. Um, mm -hmm. And so more and more kind of that, that's actually where I'm interested in in kind of looking, but the, the challenge there kind of is how, how might we tap into those ways of understanding without taking the role of the colonist once again, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and how do we do that in a respectful way? How do we do that in a way that's non-exploitative, right? And I think that's really challenging and conversations I've been having, particularly over the last year with a lot of indigenous people around the world, which I've been quite fortunate to, you know, to have, be able to have those conversations and really start to unpack that and start to understand like, okay, how do we take, you know, you know, and for, I mean, I was speaking with an Aboriginal woman um, quite a bit, you know, this last year and, and they were like, okay, from her perspective, right, as from coming from a 60,000 plus year old kind of continuous um, culture, right, it's like that, that really is a very different understanding, you know, not only of the world, but of time and, and, and how time functions, right, and, and going, okay, well, like, that's actually could be a really positive way to address some of these things, but it has to be done so much more carefully than mm. we've, you know, connected with those other ways of knowing in the past, right? So I think there's a lot of hope in that. Now, obviously, I'm not the only one looking at this. There are many people, particularly, you know, people looking at climate that are also going like, anyway, and it's even simple things of like wildfire management, right? And understanding that North America was essentially a garden when, you know, um, white colonists arrived, right? It wasn't a pristine kind of nature. It was a heavily tended garden, right? At a very <laughs> large scale across much of the continent, right? And, and going, okay, well, like, let's, let's understand like how well that was done and is that how much of that knowledge still exists that may be helpful, right? But how do you mm -hmm. do that in a way where it doesn't feel like, okay, now we're really in this bad place and now, oh yeah, now these people that we've largely, you know, um, exerted genocide on now let's kind of go and find learn from them how to kind of fix our mistakes well that that's you know quite a problematic dynamic right so i think it yeah. has to be done very carefully but i think that is where that knowledge is largely going to come from um, this kind of reductionist scientific thinking is not kind of you know not it, it's clearly caused some some major major challenges right and, and obviously the climate crisis being the biggest of those mm -hmm. Well, Laith, that does it for our questions. You know, I want to thank you for talking with us today about how the Museum of the Future is presenting innovative ideas to approach climate change and, you know, also chatting with us about your life. Really, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate actually your, your breadth of questions and it's a, a nice treat to be able to talk about kind of both sides, right? And I think so often we only get a chance to talk about our professional lives. So I very appreciate, much appreciated that. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? 
You know, I, I think as I've expressed before, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very thankful for the support that we've had actually on this project, right? Particularly handling, you know, issues that in you know other parts of the world, I think often are are challenging to get support for, particularly really addressing climate issues. And I think that that's that's something I was quite impressed here. That the the only really feedback we got about the content of the museum is that um, climate needed to be a bigger part of the story than what we were. Um, presenting right, and I think that was okay. so refreshing as an American to to see that level of support um, mm -hmm. for that, and just in general, the level of support that we received, you know, for the museum has been quite um, substantial. And you know, I will say we're the only publicly funded project um, that's been done in Dubai. So even mm. the way that the museum was built, it was built actually with um, the funding from the general public um, of Dubai. Um, not actually, you know, from kind of a sovereign wealth fund or anything like that, right? And and now we actually operate self-sufficiently as a corporate entity, which is also quite unique in the in the museum world, right? So it's, I think there's some other, you know, speaking of kind of abilities to innovate, um, you know, that's one thing. It's it's interesting to be in a place that's not afraid to try new models, even when it comes to museums. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. Music